first lesson is from Isaiah, chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom others hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned, every one, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered him, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. now stand together as Orvin reads to us the gospel reading. The Lord be with you, also with you. Holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha which means place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, 
He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered, uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Before you are seated, would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, in this Advent season, we wait. We wait in expectation. The expectation that you would come to us. The hope that we would be ready to receive you. May we hear you tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last number of years at Little T, we've explored fairly frequently the profound and profoundly difficult question of loss, pain, and adversity in life, in the life of faith. But of necessity, we have explored it most consistently in this service the Blue Christmas service. And tonight we look at it again, trusting that the Spirit of God will come to us much the same way that Jesus came to this world 2,000 years ago, bringing solace, strength, and hope to our wounded and weary hearts. One of the most common questions I hear from those experiencing grief and loss, and a question I've asked myself on many occasions, is why? Why me? Why this? Why now? Why? Why? But it is, as a rule, a question without an answer. And it hangs there reverberating in the silence, why? 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 And in the absence of either response or remedy, we may be tempted to wonder if God is even there anymore. Have you forsaken me? Am I on my own? Where, oh where, are you, God? And if the silence in the face of our questions persists, as it often does, 
we might be tempted to take the silence itself as an answer. Having become convinced that we have indeed been forsaken by God, we elide or we bring together the two questions and we ask, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that question isn't original to us in our circumstance, is it? King David asked that very question 3,000 years ago in Psalm 22. While it might provide us some measure of comfort to know that David asked God why he had been forsaken, David could be a bit dramatic at times, couldn't he? He was given to unseemly emotional displays, not least in his relationship with God. Maybe here David was giving in to a bit of emotional and spiritual hyperbole. Maybe. But in our gospel reading, which is the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, we have Jesus asking that very same question, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this case, there is no question of Jesus being overly dramatic or guilty of hyperbole. Whatever else was going on, this was the watershed moment in human history and in the battle between good and evil. So what could that question possibly mean in this context, in this situation? Led in large part by the inspired and inspiring words of John's gospel, and we've had the privilege of studying it pretty closely in our sermon series over the past year, we do believe that Jesus was and is the eternal Word of God, the second person of the Trinity. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John said. We believe that Jesus was and is both fully God and fully human. Though our understanding of all these things is of necessity profoundly limited, we believe that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were and are one, and in perfect harmony, unity, and intimacy with each other. I and my Father are one, Jesus declared. So if Jesus was God, how could God forsake himself? <laughs> That's a question well above my pay grade. I honestly don't know. I really don't. But one limited insight into this deep mystery is that Jesus took upon himself the full cup of sin and suffering. And in so doing, he had to take upon himself the full consequences of sin the core of which is full and total alienation from God. He who was one with God was God himself, had to be abandoned by God to know and bear the full weight of sin. And so God, God's self, was torn asunder by the weight of that sin, and he who had never known alienation and abandonment at that moment endured the most unimaginable of loss and pains until sin and death were overcome by the power of an indestructible life and Jesus rose from the grave. That's a further story down the road. All of us have times in our lives when we feel desolate and alone, abandoned even by God himself. I'm sure some of you are feeling that way right now. If that is the case, please take comfort from the assurance that you are not the only one 
take comfort from the fact that even Jesus experienced that. He walked the path before you. But take even greater comfort from the assurance that because Jesus walked that path 2,000 years ago, because Jesus took upon himself the full weight of alienation from God, we don't have to. Whatever alienation you are experiencing today, it is neither complete nor final. Furthermore, not only did Jesus walk the path of alienation before us, but he continues to walk it with us. In the mystery of the eternal now of God, it is an event that is both finished absolutely complete and at the same time forever present. You aren't abandoned after all. If that is true, you cry, why can't I feel it? If Jesus is with me, why do I feel so alone? And we're back to that why question for which I rarely have great answers. But again, I might have a partial answer. It is a curious and a heartbreaking thing that in the human condition there's a tendency to respond to pain and loss by withdrawing in on ourselves and it can function as the most isolating and alienating elements in our lives. When we are wounded, we want to withdraw into our pain at the very time when we most need the consolation and support of the presence of God and others, instead, we often pull back into ourselves and we suffer alone. I've seen the tendency in myself as well as in others. Now, there are a number of possible contributing factors to this tendency. One is that having been wounded and or disappointed, we want to protect ourselves from further harm. So we withdraw. Another is that we don't want to burden others with our problems, so we withdraw. A third is that we might be ashamed of our apparent weakness and frailty. We don't want others to see it, so we withdraw. Another is there might be a sense that our grief is private and shouldn't be shared with others, so we withdraw. Now, all of these reasons can have varying degrees of legitimacy. There may well be necessary withdrawal from those who have caused or exacerbate our pain. There may well be necessary seasons of solitude. But what I have seen so often is something entirely other than a season of necessary and eventually healthy solitude. Instead, what I have seen over and over again is the pain of loss exacerbated and ratcheted up a notch by the tortuous sense of being totally alone, of not having the comfort of the presence of others. It's so consistent a pattern that I've had to conclude that this is also a spiritual matter. I have come to understand that there's a malignant spiritual intentionality to the patterns of isolation that so often accompany loss, grief, pain, and disappointment. Much like the predatory cats seek to separate the weak and frail members from the herd, demonic forces seek to separate us from the God and community, the community that love us at exactly the time that we need them the most. Our thoughts are bombarded with doubt, anger, resentment. We become hyper-aware of any hint of disregard or inattentiveness on the part of others. 
Seemingly random and in and of themselves benign circumstances conspire to keep us separated and isolated. Less benign but equally random circumstances such as global pandemics serve to isolate us even further. And we hear that sibilant whisper in our ear, see, you're all alone. Nobody cares. Nobody loves you. And it seems so true. But it is in fact not true. These are the deceptions of the father of lies whose goal is our destruction. The only true answer to the question, where is God when it hurts, which is the title of a famous book on the subject by Philip Yancey, is that God by his spirit is right in the middle of our pain, loss, disappointment, and heartache, participating in our suffering with us, carrying the burden with us to make it more bearable. And because Jesus did drain the cup of suffering up to and including absolute alienation, our pain, suffering, and alienation is not, it cannot be absolute and final, regardless of how it might feel at the time. Sometimes the divine presence in our suffering has human skin wrapped around it, often at times when we most desperately need it. One of the great gifts any of us can give in our caring relationships is the gift of entering into and participating in the pain of the other. Loving presence to and participation in the suffering of another is a sacred and spirit-inspired and empowered opportunity and moment. Sometimes, though, because we are still human, the divine source of those loving acts can be somewhat camouflaged. Because we are indeed human, we will at times say and do the wrong things. Often, we don't know how to keep silent when we should. But I implore you, if you have been the recipient of an imperfect expression of love, please see it for what it still is some limited manifestation of God's relentless love for you and presence with you. Our Old Testament reading is one of five passages in Isaiah known as the Servant Songs. These remarkable prophetic passages stand out from an already remarkable book as having particular power and insight. They introduce us to a character, the Lord's Servant, who suffers for others for their healing. We read it earlier. He was despised and rejected by people, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. As Christians, we understand this to be an unmistakable reference to Jesus. Griefs, sorrows, transgressions, iniquities. Jesus drained the cup of suffering to bring us healing. Whatever your loss, whatever your grief, whatever your sin and alienation... Jesus was there before you and walks with you now to bring you physical, emotional, 
and especially spiritual healing. Where forgiveness of sin is not an instinctive place that I go when I'm caring for someone experiencing loss. But in that regard, I'm out of step with the scriptures. Here in Isaiah, it's clear that our physical, emotional, and spiritual healing is interrelated and intertwined. That the suffering servant bore the burden for all the facets of our woundedness. And we must not shy away from our need for spiritual healing because we are also suffering in other ways. Jesus was equally bold in the story of the healing of the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9, where he first forgave the man his sins, then he healed his body. Just to be clear, I don't see some kind of formula here. And a concurrent focus on repentance, forgiveness, and spiritual healing could go off the rails in a number of directions, including in the direction of Job's comforters, who were convinced his afflictions were caused by his sin. However, I do believe that this points us to, toward the wonderful, the exciting news of the gospel that Jesus suffered and died for the healing and freedom of our whole being, body, mind, and spirit. And that is wonderful news indeed, isn't it? As we approach the celebration of the birth of Jesus, it can be fairly easy to focus exclusively on the birth. For many of us, especially me, any who know me, babies give us the warm fuzzies. They're lovely and vulnerable and represent complete potential, don't they? Their entire earthly story has yet to be written, and the possibilities of their becoming are almost endless, at least in our imaginations. We look down on them and we wonder what they will become. What will they accomplish? And it's beautiful, it's exciting, and it's poignant. And at Christmas, we could get locked into those kinds of sentiments. However, the birth of this baby is different. We know what he became. We know what he accomplished. And we know what it cost. But because of that, the possibilities of our becoming are indeed endless. He suffered for our healing, our wholeness, our freedom. We have the trajectory of a glorious becoming because this baby was born to drink the cup of suffering. He was born to experience humiliation, pain, loss, alienation, and death itself so that none of those things be the need be the absolute and final word for us. They are not the last word for us. The last word for us is, rise up, my beloved, and enter into my joy. So it is fitting that at this blue Christmas service, we read and reflect on the Good Friday readings. Because the cross and the empty tomb were this baby's potential. Making our potential, our possibilities, endless. Regardless of what we are experiencing and feeling now. Thanks be to God for this greatest of Christmas gifts. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.